Heavenly Father, we invite you to have your way, that you would transform us by your Holy Spirit more into the likeness of Christ, that we would see Christ more clearly, more beautifully, and that we would be stirred by him and him alone. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat. Well, um, welcome um, to our first series in Ephesians. Um, if you've got a Bible, um, go ahead and open it. It's uh, Ephesians somewhere in the New Testament. Um, if you don't have a Bible, then you can get out your fake Bible on your phone. Um, or if you would like a Bible and you don't have either of those, then there's one on the edge. Um, just, just this is just the so we got we're here for five five kind of parts series. Um, we're not going to be looking through it by chapter by chapter. We're looking kind of today we're going to look at overview with a little bit of chapter one. Then we're going to look at um, different parts um, of the letter. Then we're going to look at what it means to be the church. Then we're going to look at all the controversial passages in chapter five. And then we're going to look at spiritual warfare and the armor of God. So that's the trajectory. You know, come as you will. Um, additionally, I'd like to just point out at the top that I'll, I'm going to make a couple of jumps um, around. And so if you're kind of like, hold on a minute, he made some illogical jumps or he didn't fill in those bridges, uh, he made some assumptions, please do come and speak to me at the end. I'd barely happily do that. It's just a kind of like, there's, there's a lot that we're going to do. So Ephesians, Ephesians is an incredible book. It's a book of two halves. And one way that someone has described it is to say that it's a letter of pure music. It's doctrine that sings. I don't know if that's how you like to think of doctrine. But it's two halves. You've got the first half, which is doctrine. What do we need to know? And then practice. How do we live? And you can see the change. Have a look with me at chapter 4, verse 1. Here we go. As a prisoner for the Lord then... I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, if you haven't read the first half, you don't know what the calling is. And then if you don't read the second half, you don't know how to work out the calling that you would have heard about in the first half. So that's the kind of shift, chapter four. All that you've been told, this massive calling, and it is massive, this massive calling, how does it work itself out in the second half of the book? In 1903, there was a guy called John Mackay, that was my Scottish accent. Um, and he was a 14-year-old boy. He would later become uh, he was president of Princeton Seminary. And he's walking in the Highlands. And picture, walking in the Highlands, 14-year-old boy, sits down, he opens his Bible, and he reads Ephesians. And he writes this. I saw a new world. Everything was new. I had a new outlook, new experience, new attitude to other people. I loved God. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I had been quickened. I was really alive. Forty years after writing that, he was invited to Edinburgh University to give the lectures. And what does he give the lectures on? Ephesians. Totally changed his life. And he says, I I look back and reading Ephesians changed my life. So what we're going to do is really quickly look at these two halves. How do they work themselves out? Okay, so we're going to look at probably one of the most dense three verses just to get going. This is still the introduction. I apologize. Okay, right, so here we go. Verse, chapter 1, verses 4, 5, and 6. Verse 4 is the claim. What is the claim of what God is going to do? For he chose us in him, that's Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. That's the claim. Okay, that's where we're ending up. 
This is one way of talking about being chosen is elect. In the same way that Israel was an elect nation by God's grace, chosen. So the people of God now are the elect. We are chosen by God. And one day we will be totally holy and blameless. Well, not yet. But one day we'll be totally holy and blameless. How? How's he he doing all this? Verse 5. In love, and then he does three things. He predestines us to be adopted as his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. How's he going to make us holy and blameless? Well, he's predestined us in Christ. He's adopted us through Christ, and it's all by his pleasure and his will. Now, predestined. We're already there. Now, let's not get too kind of worried about, we can all go away and we can all think about it, but think about it like this. Before creation of the world, he sees, if you think, we're not saved because of how good we are. We're saved because we needed our bad stuff to be forgiven. Yeah? Okay, so predestined is God saw all the muck and all the sin in one big thing and he goes, I'm still going to enter human history and I'm still going to save them. So he sees all of your sin in one big moment before the creation of the world and he goes, they're going to need saving and I'm going to save them. It's a massive concept. It's not like he's kind of gone, there's a little bit of good in them and there's a little bit of bad. He's seen all of our bad and he's gone, I still love them. In love, he predestined us. And then it gets even better. Rather than him saying, right, I can see all the mark and I know I'm going to need to send Jesus. Rather than keep them at kind of far away at distance, I'm going to adopt them. I'm going to bring them in. I'm going to lavish my love on them. I desperately want to be their father. I want to care for them. I want to comfort them. I want to shepherd them. So not only are we predestined, we're then adopted. And then the question arises, well, you know, he might have just done it because he felt sorry for us. We're his creation, so he has to kind of fix his problem. No, no, no. His pleasure and will. It was a joy for him to save us, irrespective of everything that he sees because we've been predestined. So in God's love, we are predestined, all of our sin before time. We're adopted, we're saved, and then it's for his pleasure and his will. Then verse 6, why? To the praise of his glorious grace. It's all for his glory. It's not for us. It's for his glory. Now, there's really two interesting words. In all, just think, that's just three verses. And we've basically skimmed the top. But look at me. Verse 5, or just before verse 5, you'll see it. Two words. In love. That's God's love for us. And it's summed up that he predestined, he adopted, and he did it because of his pleasure and will. Those are massive concepts, and they're wrapped up in God's love. So... When we turn to chapter 5, verse 1, have a look with me. Chapter 5, verse, verse, verse 1. We, so think about God's love, this massive concept. Before we could ever love him, before we could praise him, before we could speak, before we could walk, he loved us, he saw our sin, and he adopted us, and it was because of his pleasure and will. Verse 5. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. There it is. In the same way, in the same way how God has loved us, we are to love other people. We are to imitate God. And then Paul gives us the greatest example, just as Christ loved us 
and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So when you come to verse chapter 5 and it's how do we love one another in the church, this is not just kind of like, oh, we say the peace together on, you know, a Sunday or kind of like, you know, you know, we meet someone, for, you know, go to the pub and stuff like that. This is, this is like just, you know, you think of how, what it means that God loved us, that before we could ever offer anything, he was going to go, I'm going to save them. And then not only am I going to save, I'm going to bring them in as my children. And not only because of that, it's because of my pleasure and will. Some of us have been around for a couple of weeks while Vicky has been challenging us on hospitality. I don't know about you, but I've been really challenged to work, work through that. And she had this idea of hospitality, and she came at it from the way Jesus had meals. But you could very easily go from this way. How many of us, when we think of hospitality, it's actually like, well, if they could pay me back, then I would be. Or even if you get past that, you get to kind of adoption and then you go, actually, they're just, this is just, so, you know, kind of someone in my church. And, do you know what I mean? We don't ever think of them as family. And then, oh my goodness, forbid it that it should be my pleasure and will. You, you know what I mean? You could, she could have gone there from there. She could have got to hospitality from there. I think she was just being gentle on us, but that's why. Now, that's, do you see how that, that kind of links? Now, I'm going to say something that's tongue-in-cheek, tongue in so please don't email Jago and get upset. Okay. Now, this, these are just words that I'm not attacking any group of people because no, one, it, no, one, no one's got it perfectly. But it's, I think it's very easy, isn't it? Because you can become far too conservative when you know lots of things, but you don't do anything about it. You don't act. And then you can become far too liberal when you're doing lots of things, but it's not grounded in truth. Now, those are not the right terms, but you can see what I'm saying. So the question is, what is the hinge of getting it right? It's all well and good going on. The first part's this and the second part's this. What is the hinge? And it's probably that this prayer is probably the second or third most famous prayer in the Bible. Some people don't know it's in Ephesians. You'll know a bit. Turn with me to chapter 3. Verse 14. This is just before that passage, chapter 14, 1, that we looked at. This is the hinge. He's, it, Paul has just outlined these massive concepts in the first three chapters. He's about to go, how do you work it out in the church, in the family, in marriage? And this is the bridge, the bridge between knowing and doing. Now, um, we've all got different versions. Now, I'm going to speak louder, but if you would like to just read out your passage... Um, we're going to do 14 to 21. If you just want to read that out, say it as a prayer for yourself, say it for a prayer for the church, say it for a prayer between the people next to you, okay? This is the hinge. This, I think, is what we want to be. When you read, when you, if you've never read this prayer, when you read it, be like, yeah, that would be a good church to be. This is what we want to be. This is what we want to know and experience. Okay, so I just get excited by these types of things. I'm so sorry. Okay, here we go, right? This is the prayer. Prayer for yourself, prayer for the people next to you. Just to highlight, this is still the introduction. Okay. (laughs) Chapter 3, verse 14 to 21. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints 
to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. If you've ever thought about, you know, I'd really like to learn a passage of scripture, and I don't quite know where to start. That, that's, that's a good place to start. So that's the hinge. Now, Paul, let's just think about, Paul wrote Ephesians. Now, for some people here will have studied a bit of theology, and some people will have heard that, you know, actually some people might go, actually, I'm not so sure Paul did write Ephesians. Now, if that's the first time you've heard about it, he did. But if... if it... <laughs> No, 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 but I can understand that there is, a, there, is, there is a lot of arguments about why Paul may not have written Ephesians. Genuine concerns, which I totally get. And, you know, some of it is about style, some of it is about wording. And I think that the, the, the strongest argument is that it's impersonal. I think that's the, the strongest argument about why it's not Paul. It is, but why it's not him. For example, take the letter of Romans, right? He's never been to Rome. 28 people are mentioned. 28 people are mentioned in this letter to a place he's never even been. Now, Ephesus. You remember, Ephesus in Acts, if, you, if you've read through Acts, Ephesus is the place that he turns up and, they, and he says, you know, have you heard about Jesus? And they go, well, we've, we've heard about John the Baptist, but we haven't heard about the Holy Spirit. You know, and they get baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then they see these incredible things this city becomes kind of, they start seeing revival. There's this incredible passage where all the witch doctors bring all their books and they kind of burn them in the city. It's incredible. And then you read about this riot that goes on and they basically want to kill Paul and the Christians. So you spent two years with these Christians and they've seen some incredible things and they've been brought together. Now, let me just read for you Acts 20. You can find it if you want or I'm just going to read it for you. This is how he ends his time in Ephesus. This is how he ends his time in Ephesus, okay? And think of your church leaders. I mean, I've only been there for a while, so obviously you can't think about me. But, you know, think about Jago. Is this what you're going to do with Jago? Okay. Acts 20, 25 to 28. This is what he's, he's giving a big talk to all the leaders. Now I know that none of you among who I've ever gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I'm innocent of all the blood of all men. For I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought with your own blood. Then it goes on to say this. When he had said this, he knelt down with them and prayed. They wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that he would never see his face again, and they accompanied to the ship. And none of them are mentioned. That's, that, is, that is a genuine tension. You know what I mean? Okay, so how do we reconcile that? He's left the people, he's loved them, and then he's writing to them, and there's no one. The only person that gets a mention is the postman, Tychius. How do we, how do we reconcile that. Well, I think, I, I think there's a number of options. B. 
Because there's no kind of, if you take other letters, like 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians or Galatians, there is a specific purpose to why he's writing. Either they're just rubbish or some kind of doctrine has kind of, you know, escalated and something like that. Here there doesn't seem to be that. There's a, there's a deep spiritual undertone, but it doesn't seem to be a specific problem to a specific church. And therefore, while I do think that it was sent to Asia Minor, specifically to Ephesus, it wasn't sent only to Ephesus. It was written for a whole host of number of churches in an area, of which Ephesus was kind of one of the big, massive churches. Because Ephesus at the time, it was all caught up, we're going to look at this throughout the weeks, but it was all caught up in spirituality. It had this massive temple um, to Diana, and it was at the time one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And um, she's the um, kind of goddess of fertility, she's the one with the multiple breasts and things like that. And so there's this whole cult in Ephesus and the surrounding areas of sex and sexual worship and temple prostitutes. And that is kind of there, but it's not explicit in the letter. So I think he's writing from Rome in the early 60s. It's the sort of the same time that he writes uh, 1 and 2 Timothy. Um, interestingly, there's, you know, he could have wrote it at other times. He's clearly in prison. He's in chains, as you see in chapter 4, verse 1. Now, that was a kind of glide over, you know, there are some big concerns. But we have to, be, we have to acknowledge why why. Are they not, you know, when you, when you read all the other ones, you know, to, you know, to, to Lydia and to, to the church, that he knows all these people, so why? And that, I don't think it was specific to Ephesus, though it was sent to an area. So that's how I do it. But I'm very happy to talk um, to more people that would like. Now, we're finally at the main thing. I was, no, that's not quite right. But chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Now, another reason that people give that Paul didn't write it, is in, in Ephesians, there are some massive verses, like massive verses, and that's unusual for Paul. And the reason I would say that that's, you, you can't use that as an argument is I think he's capable of doing a whole different styles and literary techniques. But from chapter 1, verse 3, to chapter 1, verse 14, is one sentence. There's no full stops, there's no break, there's no breath, this is one sentence. He says, hello, in the first two verses. And then he goes into this exaltation, 3 to 14. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Now, I'd like to highlight before we kind of get to it. Um, this is, I genuinely think this is kind of coming from his gut. When we read this, we're going to try and get a sense of, this is coming from somewhere. And I think for some of us, we can know so much here that it gets stuck. So we don't feel like, oh, actually, I don't want to kind of say things out loud or sing out loud or pray out loud, even though we know a lot. And then for some of us, we're kind of always speaking out loud, but we're not really saying anything. And Paul is going to combine those two things. And it's going to, he's going to kind of pray this and he's doing exaltation and it's worship. And it's, in, it's incredible. So we're getting to that. Now, just before we... I'm, Building this up to be this massive thing, because it is. Now, he kind of diverges and goes off on tangents and goes, isn't it amazing because of this, and then this is because of this, and this is because of this. But at the heart of it, there's three key points that he's trying to get across. Have a look with me. Once you become a Christian, three things that you get when you're in Christ. Verse 7. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, and then he's going to go off and he's going to tell how amazing that really is and all the other things that God is doing. And then we go down to verse 11. In him you are also chosen. To these kind of list of three. And everything else is just, isn't God amazing? Look at what he's done. So, we're going to read this. If it's helpful to read it, you can read it. If it's helpful to close your eyes, whatever. Okay, so we're in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Okay. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the spiritual, in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his grace and will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. That's how he's kicking off the letter. I'm going to ask Jago if we can do a five-year sermon series just on that. I'm only joking. Okay, so let's, we're just going to spend a couple of minutes thinking about this. And it's tr- so this is trying to encapsulate literally everything. Before creation, God's plan, our salvation, and where we're going. All of it. Now, did you notice in all of this where we were? Our part that we played. Did you notice? Now, before we get to what we did, let's look at the benefits of being in Christ. Just in these 11 verses. Every, verse 3, every spiritual blessing in him. When you're in Christ, when you follow Christ, you have died with Christ. You're alive with Christ. You are raised with Christ. When he says every spiritual blessing, he's talking about everything that you can think of that's in the New Testament. We're heirs with Christ. We have access to the Father in Christ. We're adopted in Christ. We're reborn in Christ. We have, we have, we have in our faith, we are seen with Christ. Every spiritual blessing. 
Verse 4, then we're going to be holy and blameless. We've already looked at this. In him, in Christ, before God, you and I, when we're in Christ, will literally be holy and blameless. And what does that mean? No guilt, no condemnation, nothing when we're in Christ. Holy and blameless. That is how we're seen. We're seen in Christ. Verse 5, we're adopted through Christ. Why? Because of his pleasure and his will. Verse 7, redemption in Christ. We were once slaves to the world, to the sin and the devil. We are now set free. We are redeemed. The price has been brought by Christ's own blood. Redeemed. It's paid for. Verse 7 again. Forgiven of all of our sins. Past, present, future. Forgiven. Now when we think of forgiven, we, you know, we kind of have this kind of almost forgiven view. But what it means here is absolutely, totally wiped away. The total depth, the total width, the total scope of God's grace is for all sinners, the worst of sinners. Whether that's morally the worst of sinners or spiritually the worst of sinners. For those people that say, I don't need anything to do with Christ. And his grace is lavished on each and every one of us with all wisdom and understanding. Whose wisdom and understanding? Not ours yet. His, his wisdom and understanding has lavished his own love on us. Where is all this leading? Verse 9. What is the mystery of his will and good pleasure? To fix everything. He's bringing all together so that we might finally see God in all of his majesty. All things brought together. Think of a bath. Dirty bath. We're in the middle at the moment of a bath. The plug one day is going to be totally filled and everything is going to go in one direction. And at the moment, there is only one direction it can go. And it will be a world where there's no more conflict, no more immoral distribution of wealth, no more tension, no more disunity, a perfect peace of all creation, including our relationship with God. This is still just what you get when you become a Christian. Verse 11, you've been chosen. We're predestined. How do we know that this is true? Because God is working out all things in conformity with the purpose of his will. This is not as easily think that God's here before creation. He creates and then the fall happens and he's like, oops, now plan B. Think about it. You've got to think this is what Paul's argument is. That he's saying before the creation world, before the fall, he was going to save us. And he created it for his pleasure and his will. Then verse 13. This is the moment that you think, this is our moment to shine. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now, what that verse is saying is we didn't just fumble our way into faith. We weren't just born into faith. It was God had realigned, as he's been telling us in the previous 10 verses, God has realigned everything so that we might hear the truth, the gospel of our salvation. We heard it. And, we resp- and that's it. And he's been realigning. I'll give you my, my, my story as an example. But any of us could, ha- would, could give an example like this. I was born in a Christian family. I've been around the whole kind of the, the weird things. You know, I was, I was three when I first spoke in tongues. I've been around the kind of whole thing, so I knew how church worked. But yet I wasn't a Christian. I wasn't in Christ. I didn't know Christ. And at 18, I'd flunked out of school, and so I had to get a job. 
Being a Christian family, the only people that we knew who had jobs were Christians. And so I went to go and work for a guy who was running a Christian camp called Soul Survivor, a guy called Mike Pilavachi. And instantly I was this guy's PA. And I basically just ran around, you know, this, you know, these camps. And because I've been a Christian my whole life, you know, I've been in the Christian world my whole life, I, I knew how these, all these things work. I wasn't going to the meetings. I wasn't going to the worship. I didn't like the talks. I wasn't anti. I just thought it was just life. I'd done two weeks there. I had nothing to go back to. I had no job. I didn't get into university. So I was like, well, the least I should do is probably hang around for another week. I hung around at this kind of big Christian camp uh, for another week, and I'm there just kind of chilling out, relaxing, doing my thing. And I bump into a girl that I used to bully at school. She says to me, are you going to one of the main meetings? And I say, wow, you know, I know what they're going to say. I can do the talk for you. She says, you should come. I feel bad, you know, because I felt sorry for her. And so I go along and I'm sitting in this big meeting with 4,000 people. And this guy called Andy Croft stands up. He's never really done a talk before. It's his first year. He does a talk and I hear the message of Jesus. And I go, I need Jesus. Now, was I looking for Jesus? Absolutely not. Did he come running for me? Yes, he did. In all of those things, all the mess-ups and how things had lined themselves up, God was working it out so that I would hear the gospel of my salvation and I'd be saved. That's what happened. That summer, that day, I can sit there and I write. It's, and so it's so easy, isn't it, when you read passages like that, but actually, you know, it's so easy in our culture to say, you know, I, I considered it. And yes, there is so much, there is evidence to consider. There is truth to consider. There is questions to work out. God is drawing us in. He's setting things in motion. So even the bit that we're meant to be like, this is our moment, it's like, well, he's been doing it already. He's taken us to the place where we're going to hear the truth and respond to the gospel of our salvation. And then we carry on. Verse 13, having now believed. You're like, this is our moment. This is it. Having believed, you were marked in him. We're marked in Christ with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Why? Because we're God's possessions are. We're not even ourselves. We've died with Christ and we're risen with Christ. Just like baptism. We're like this. We go in, we come out. And we are no longer ourselves. And all of this is in here. Time and time and time and time and time again, you see the salvation story and all we have is because of Christ. All we know to be true. We're adopted, we're justified, we're saved, we're secure, we're redeemed, we're ransomed. And the question remains, where are we in the story? What do we have to do? I heard a great phrase. Now, some people will get offended by this phrase, but let's all, it's a good phrase to discuss. The only thing, the oh, just don't shoot me, but the only thing, it's good to think about these things. The only thing you and I bring to the table in our salvation is the sin that made salvation necessary. That's a good pub conversation. 
And the reason this is important, the reason this is important, because some of us, not all of us, but some of us have been to churches where you go in and you sit down and then they say, right, if you're a Christian, you're going to do this, but you're not going to do this, and you're not going to do this, and you're not going to do this. And now I've told you what you're not going to do, what you're not going to do, what you're not going to do. What you must go and do is not go and do this, this, and this. And so you go, well, I am a Christian. Okay, brilliant. So I'm not going to go and do those things. And I go out into the big wide world and there's absolutely no context of not doing these things. It's you. You are a Christian, so therefore you don't do these things. But that's a total contradiction from verse 4 onwards. He chose us. He's making us holy and blameless. So when you get to the second part of Ephesians and you go, golly, this is big stuff. That's the whole point. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about us making it out. We're only being molded and shaped into holy and blameless because of Jesus and for his glory. Because otherwise it's going to rest on us and we're going to just feel totally overwhelmed. So when it comes to our salvation, we have to get it right. We can't be going, oh, you know, if I do this better, if I act like this, if I get married, if I do these things, and it's absolutely not true. He saw us before the beginning of the world and then in love comes. It's the overwhelming, all-satisfying, all-complete love of God. And that is what changes everything. That's what breaks our chains. Finally, very quickly, all through this is punctured with that phrase, God's glory. Verse 6, for the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, in order that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And then you and I, who are God's possession, for the praise of of his glory. Everything is for the praise of God. Everything that God is doing is for his glorification. Not yours, not mine, not this church, not ourselves, God. God and God and God and God alone. And therefore, when you look in the mirror and you go, I'm a Christian, he made you a Christian, he brought you in, he adopted you for his glory. And so when you go away and you you live a life that's salt and light. It's like, it's not for you, it's for his glory. So, I'm going to pray. I hope this has been okay. I'm sure this has thrown up a couple of things. But, you know, that's just the first, you know, thing. What I wanted to try and do is to see, you know, God's overarching salvation plan, salvation story is not about us, it's about him. And therefore, no matter what circumstance or situation or feeling, that he is there undergirding everything rather than us and our decision. Okay, so can I, if, can I, if, 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 if you'd like, would you be able to stand? I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing one final song. And then we'll go out into the night. I'm sorry if I've spoken so quickly, um, but we can chat afterwards. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this incredible letter that we don't know exactly when it was written. We don't know exactly who received the first copy. We don't know what was going on in Paul's life. But we thank you for these beautiful words. These deep words of truth that 
a longing to take our hearts and our minds to higher places to see you for all that you have done. And I pray that you would help us now. Help us now. Help us to see the truth that you have loved us before the creation of the world. That you know our story. That when you hung on the cross, you knew us by name. And I thank you that we're not here by accident. That you desire to be our Father. And I pray, Heavenly Father, over August, no matter where all of us are going, whether on holiday, whether in London, whether good times or hard times, I pray that we would be rooted and established in Christ's love. That we would have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Heavenly Father, I I just ask for myself and for anyone here that struggles with that, struggles with the idea of a love surpassing knowledge. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and do a deep work in our hearts. And as we worship now, would you help us to fix our eyes on you and you alone. Amen.